Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a financial planning and investment firm. Today, we are joined by our guest that's coming to us all the way from across the pond in the United Kingdom, Pete Komalafe. Pete and I met through social media. So once again, it speaks about the power of social media and connecting this large world and actually making it a much smaller place. So when Pete and I met, I want to say it was sometime last year, we began to talk and I followed him on Instagram and I started to see all the stuff he was doing. And I said, this guy needs to be a guest on the show because I think he has some good stuff that the listeners would be very interested in hearing. So Pete, thanks for joining us today. Um, Lynn, thank you for having me. We met, it feels like a long time ago now. And when we initially started talking, you were saying that, you know, you were planning on doing a podcast and yeah, it's great to be here and, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So Pete, I know you're coming from over there from the UK and we've talked about this before, but I just want to get it right out, right out in the open because everybody's wondering, maybe they're not, but I was wondering, I know you had a background in music, so we just got to get it out there. Is it Tupac or is it Biggie? Just let me know. Tupac or Biggie? That's a tough choice for me to make, dude. Yeah, because oh, I did production, I did rapid and all that kind of stuff. I had both of their albums in my like playlist. So for me, I look at it in two ways. I look at it in terms of like lyrically. And then I look at it from the storytelling part of things. And like lyrically, Biggie had it down in terms of the way he used to flow. I mean, the verse I always remember is the hypnotized verse. I mean, the first time I heard that, I couldn't believe it. I, I repeated that multiple times. But then you go on to like Tupac and just the way he used to, you know, tell stories and it used to flow and he just be, he was able to knock these things out like nothing. So it's a hard choice for me to make, man. I'd put them <laughs> both in, in a high regard equally. That's a very safe answer. So, <laughs> so Pete, give us a little history about yourself. How'd you get into this conversation of money? Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, man. So conversation of money came about because I've been 14 years in financial services. And I started in financial services back when it was prestigious to work for a bank or for a financial company. That shine has long gone since 2007, 2008. So yeah, I started when it was still prestigious. I didn't think I was actually going to get a job in a bank because when I was much, much younger, I was really poor with money. I used to bounce checks. My money management was just really terrible. My credit score, which is your FICO score over there, was next to zero pretty much. And you needed to have a good credit score to get a job in a bank. So you know, I remember going for an interview and this bank and thinking, right, I'm never going to get this, but I had to go. I was coerced into going. And the lady that interviewed me, a lady called Jenny Berry, I remember her till today. She said, you know, my customers are going to love you. I'm going to offer you the job right now. And I said, well, thank you. But once you do the credit scoring and, and stuff, you're not going to give me the job because my credit score is bad. I mean, I'm poor with money. As luck would have it in hindsight, the credit scores came through okay. I started in the job in the bank there. Yeah, I've been in financial services ever since. It's been 14 years from that point. But conversation of money came around because, you know, whilst I was selling financial products and financial services to clients, I picked up all this knowledge. I didn't quite know how to translate and apply that knowledge to my personal life. And 
it wasn't until maybe about a year, a year and a half, maybe two years ago that I started thinking about the fact that other people are going to be in the same boat as me, but they don't have the privilege of working in financial services. So conversation of money came about out of my desire to help people and to demystify financial products and financial services. Nice. So I know that the conversation of money will be the theme of the podcast today. And so you kind of told us a little bit about your background. How did you get, and you gave us a little trail of how you got started in the space. But what I like to hear from you is when we talked before, I always love hearing the story of how you started at the bottom. And then uh, to me, that's like a, a very motivating story. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners, where you started at when you started working at Canary Wharf, which is like our... It's like your Wall Street. Yeah. So when I started in the bank, I always had this idea that I wanted to work in Canary Wharf for one simple reason. In my mind, it was always the place that if you worked there, you're on your way to success and wealth and all these things. I didn't know how I was going to get there because unfortunately, I don't have a university degree. But I knew that I was going to end up there in some way, shape or form. I just didn't really understand the steps that I was going to take to get there. I took a bit of a gamble, a calculated risk. I I quit my job in corporate banking um, because I wanted to progress and there was no opportunity. And I said, right, you know what? I'm going to jack this in, give up my car, give up the place that I had, give up a really, really good job. And I'm going to move back into London and look for a job in Canary Wharf. And I thought it can't be that difficult. There were loads of jobs in the city. And it took me four months to get a phone call from a recruitment agent to say, look, I've seen your resume online. I think that you'd be suitable for this job. And I said, well, where is it? He goes, Canary Wharf. And if you ever watch the UK version of Apprentice, whenever they do the opening shots to this show, they fly over Canary Wharf. And there is this one iconic building in Canary Wharf. It's got, you know, sort of a peak at the top. It's shaped like a pyramid almost at the top. I was going to be working in that building on the 50th floor, which is the top floor in that building. I remember specifically preparing for this job and it was quite a rigorous process to go through. It was two telephone interviews to qualify you for a face-to-face assessment day. I got through to the assessment day and I thought, right, I don't want to turn up late. I left the house extra early because I didn't want there to be, you know, something going on with traffic or the trains that would delay me. Got there 20 minutes early, walked into the boardroom with 25 other guys who were ex-stockbrokers and all this kind of stuff for the assessment day. And it was quite a rigorous thing to go through. There were quite people almost every hour. At the end of the day, I found myself there. But, you know, fast forward very, very quickly. I ended up being offered a job as a telephone boy in this company. And that meant answering the phone, making phone calls for people, making appointments for people and doing very, very low level sales. For me, I started off at £28,000 over here, which isn't a lot of money. You can barely survive on that level of money in London because the rents are so high and, and all that kind of stuff. I started off at £28,000. And in my mind, I was working with people where I thought, you're good at what you do, but you're no better than myself if I had the opportunity to do that job. And in five years, I went from telephone boy to sit in on the executive team of that company. It's actually an American company called MetLife. You guys will know it. And it took me five years to get there. And during that period of time, you know, I worked really, really hard and had a lot of setbacks. You know, this is a corporate environment. I'm, I'm a black guy, <laughs> clearly. Working in, a, in an industry and in an office with 200 people where there's me and two other black guys in there, two of them being in IT. So I'm the only guy in the sales team who's black, wanting to get onto the exec team, going for promotions to progress through this business. 
you know, I had a load of setbacks. I applied for one job three times and the feedback was, well, dude, like we have an issue that we have to consider from a commercial point of view. And the fact that you are the way you are, 50% of our clients will want to deal with you. 50% of our clients won't. And reading between the lines, that meant, well, you're not white. So 50% of people will want to deal with you because you're black. And the other half will just be like, no, I don't want to deal with you. And that was really hard kind of feedback to take on board because frankly, I can't go and bleach myself. I can't turn myself white. So within that feedback, I looked for something a bit more constructive. So I said to my sponsor at the time, my line manager, I said, look, there's nothing I can do about that piece of feedback, but what are the things that I can work on that will put me in good stead for the next time round? And they gave me a long list of things. And I said, right, I'm going to go away. I'm going to do those things. And once I've done those, if the job comes up again, I would expect having met all these things that I get the opportunities go. The second time around, fortunately for me, the guy who told, gave me this not very constructive feedback had left the business. He got sacked. And second time around, I still didn't get it. And I, again, went back and said, look, right, so where's the constructive bit? What bit things can I work on? And I made it very, very clear at that stage to say that if I do this one thing, and it was only one thing on the list, if I do this one thing and I don't get this promotion, I will leave the business because I am an asset to the business. I'm willing to move anywhere within the country, in the, within the UK, and nobody else is willing to do that. So if I don't get it, I'm leaving. And the third time round, lucky, I got the job. And what that kind of allowed me to do, it allowed me to accelerate my, my earnings from £28,000 to over £120,000 a year. And that's not a given. You have to work really, really hard for that. But it meant that I finally got to that place that I thought I was always going to be, where I could earn good money to kind of set myself self up in life. Nice. One of the things that you, you told me about, you said you never wanted to be your own glass ceiling. And you talked about different little things that you did to set yourself apart, even though you were the minority in the place that you work. There's only three black people working at the place. What did you do? Talk to me about how you weren't being your own glass ceiling. What did you do to make sure that you would be able to get all the opportunities that you thought you should have? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I think it's kind of common to assume that people will always have an, an assumption of how you're going to come across the, how, what you're like if you're black, right? And that isn't an understatement to make. I think that's pretty much established. And that's partly to do with culture, what people see on TV, around our music and fashion, all that kind of stuff. People always have an assumption of what you're going to be like as a person. Now, I'm a firm believer that you can't control that initial assumption of what they think you're going to be like. What you can do, though, is you can control how they think about you after you've had an interaction with them. So throughout my years in, in the corporate world, and I've been in corporate world now for 14 years, I'm very, very calculated in how I prepare for meetings. And the things that I do to change the perception that people have of me after they've had an interaction. So, for example, if you ever see me in a suit, I'm calculated with what I wear. If I'm going to a networking event or I'm going to an event where there's going to be loads of people, I might wear a lapel pin just to add that little bit extra bit of attention because it's a conversation starter. And I always want to be the kind of person that they look at and say, well, actually, he looks like he knows what he's going to talk about. So we're going to pay attention to him. And in my mind as well, the biggest thing that I do is I always plan ahead around what I want these people to 
think about me and say about me after I've left the room. And that dictates how I run the meeting, what I go through in the meeting, the words I use, how I say things and how I position things in a meeting. And for me, that has been a great source of success and progression because it means that I firmly place within my control the things that I can directly influence and opposed to worrying about things that I have no control over. Hearing you say that, the first thing that popped into my mind, something that my grandfather used to always tell me, and he would always say this, and I didn't understand what he was saying, but he would say, Emlyn, if you look like someone, you act like someone, people will treat you like someone. And here I'm seeing that principle in effect now. And that's awesome because I think that does contribute to not only breaking through your glass ceiling, not being your own glass ceiling, but the other thing that it does, I think, is you dress for the position that you want, right? Absolutely. And that's really, really important from a corporate point of view. I always found that I was always the smartest dressed guy in the office. Why? Because I want people to notice me. Like They notice me because I'm black, right? But you're going to notice me because I look smart. And whenever you speak to me, I'm always talking sense. You'll remember me for that reason. And when you need something, who are you going to think about? Who is the first person that's going to pop to your head is going to be me. But on that topic of not being your glass ceiling, I think as black people, it's really common. It wouldn't be an understatement to say that there are certain things that we face. The assumptions is one of them. But the other thing is that, you know, from an infrastructural point of view in society, be it, you know, in the US or in the UK, there are certain things that are placed in our way. And again, it comes back to the things that you can control and the things that you can't control. And whilst those things are there, you have to acknowledge them. You have to be brave enough to be able to go up against them, knowing full well that you control and it's within your power to control everything that you can, that you have in order to break through that glass ceiling. And when I say don't be your own glass ceiling, it's really just a metaphor to say don't limit yourself or don't be your own limitation by the way you think and how you put yourself forward in society, especially within a professional setting. I totally agree with that. And I, and I think that I know we're talking about things that are issues that are for black men that we've went through. But I think that those issues expand outside of the black community. And I think it does really affect most minorities. I think that a lot of my Latino friends or a lot of my Indian friends or even some of my Armenian friends or whatever other cultures and backgrounds, the friends that I have and people that we interact with have come. I think that when you are the minority, it does like sometimes you may be the only Indian person in the room and the interactions that they have with you are the only time that they ever will interact with an Indian person. And so it is on you to make sure that you put your best foot forward, not only for yourself, but for your community and for other people that are going to follow in your footsteps, because they need to be able to see you doing something that they can see themselves doing. And if they don't have something to look at it, it makes it incredibly difficult. Absolutely. So you started the conversations of money and you get into this space. And so what really sparked that? I know you talked about it a little bit in a previous conversation, but talk to me about the Like you wanted to make sure that you had very distinct conversations about money. Why, why is that important? Because one thing that I found out, you know, working in Canary Wharf, when I started to earn really good money was that I would go and spend money on just dumb stuff. I bought a thousand pound pair of sneakers. I would buy a thousand pound suit. I would buy a watch worth 12,000 pounds. And for me, 
that was the symbol of success, right? Because that's everything that I'd seen in every single hip hop video that I'd ever watched. That is what you basically do. You make money, you show outwardly that you are successful and that you have money. And it wasn't until I started having conversations with other guys who worked in the office who were kind of on the similar sort of earning structure to me and even guys that were way over and above my pay grade that we'll have conversations and they'll be talking about, you know, the fact that they have two homes and they have like, you know, holiday home here and you know, holiday home there. And I'm thinking you guys have got property. Like that's a tangible asset. And here's me walking around in a thousand pound sneakers, a thousand pound suit with a 12,000 pound watch on. And that's all I have. I have nothing else to show for my money. And that really stems back to the fact that when I was growing up, I never had those kind of conversations around the dinner table around stocks and shares, investing, saving money, budgeting. And these guys were on a completely different level. And the whole reason why conversation of money came about is because I feel that I've had the benefit of working in financial services and being exposed to financial products and financial services as a, as a whole that I now realize that I can look back with an epiphany and say, well, actually, I'm making a few mistakes, so I need to tweak things. And other people aren't as fortunate as I have been. And so Conversation of Money is a place where I post daily content, 60-second videos with a point, something that people can take away and consider for their own personal finances. And for bigger, more in-depth sort of topics, I would generally do something like an IGTV where I talk 10 minutes about something in particular. But I think, you know, even on Instagram, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of, you know, misunderstanding around certain things. And I think it's really important to have a clear voice that understands the financial world, financial services and financial products to kind of demystify and provide relevant information that is accurate. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, how has the culture of hip hop impacted the way regular people view money? It certainly impacted me. <laughs> like I said, when I started making money, I did what I saw on the hip hop videos. I'd buy a car, I'd go and buy clothes and jewelry and all these things that frankly do not matter. And I think as a culture, you see it now, like all of the rappers who are making money right now, what's the first thing they do? They go and show off their money because that is the symbol of success. I shared a video on my account a week and a half ago and it was T-Pain. And I love T-Pain, by the way, like <laughs> dude, that guy, <laughs> I used to rock to him and he used to be an inspiration when I was producing music as well. Right. But he talked about how he went from having $40 million to nothing in the space of two years. And I think as a culture, we look at these guys, they go and buy a Bugatti. And this is what T-Pain did. He bought a Bugatti for like $1.2 million, right? Gave it back six months later after putting a hole in the radiator because he thought, no, nah, I don't want to. He finally then dawns on him that actually that radiator is going to cost you like $300,000, right? And he realizes it's a bad investment, hands it back, loses $400,000. I think as a culture, we look at all these things and we think, oh, that's a great idea. Bugattis and diamonds and all this kind of stuff and expensive watches. And that becomes the beacon of success. And that isn't the truth. And I think it takes a little bit of life lessons and experience to realize that. And if I could achieve one thing on Instagram, if nothing else at all, is to kind of have people realize that people who do those things, yes, it might be a goal that you want these things yourselves, but why are you really buying these things? Are you doing it to enrich yourself or are you doing it to show off? And if that is the case, showing off what you have to other people 
it doesn't matter. Nobody really cares. Anybody who is important doesn't pay any attention to that. I always say that, like, you see pictures of people on Instagram, and I'm saying, like, you know, famous people, and they have stacks of money. And I was like, I've never seen a wealthy person have stacks of money. Like, I've never seen true wealth. True wealth is silent. And what I'll say is, and I'm not here to bash the hip hop culture. I think it's something that some people are trying to make changes. I know the Kendrick Lamars, the J. Coles of the world, Jay-Z's, you know, made some incredible money moves. But what I think it is, is that we are learning since we didn't have those conversations at the dinner table with our family, we're learning what we think money should be from people that didn't learn what money should really be. And it's something that's perpetuating the bad habits of how we spend money. So I'm not, you know, trying to bash these guys because I think given the same opportunity, I would have made the same mistakes. But because I've been, you know, been fortunate enough to work in the financial services industry, there's some different things that I've been able to not do. But the impulse is to go do those things. I mean, ESPN had a great 30 for 30 called Broke, where it talks about how these guys lose all their money. And, and I think that that is a direct result of lack of education and not having conversation around money. Absolutely. On that topic, I think Nipsey, rest in peace, that guy was one of the few rappers who understood that it was all about investing in assets very, very early on. And there was a clip that I saw online where he started talking about this. And the guy who was interviewing was saying like, what? Say that again. You're going to do what? You're not going to buy a, an Escalade. You're going to do what? And he was talking about investing in real assets, investing in property, you know, putting money into the stock market for returns. And he was one of the very few who really kind of like spoke out about it at a very, very early stage in his career. Absolutely. He had that mailbox money, right? He said, every time yeah. I go to the mailbox, it's a check from something that I invest in. Yeah. I want to get mailbox money. Yeah. That's a piece Nipsey. When I was thinking about that in the, the whole hip hop thing, and I just think it does, you just got to get real with that part of your money. You, you have to be able to do that. But back to the conversation, what, what would you say one important money conversation is that you need to have? You can say one or two, but just give me an important money conversation that you find that people aren't having that they should have more often. For me, one of the things that I wish that my parents had sat me down to teach me about early on in life, and people will think this is really, really boring, but it's very, very important. It's the foundation of everything is budgeting. It's how much do you have coming in? How much have you got going out? Do you have any money left over after all of your expenses? And by the way, you know, there will be instances where you're going to have to pay for something that you didn't quite plan for. And that's the foundation of everything. If you can't budget effectively, you don't know what's coming in, what's going out. You don't manage your money properly by budgeting effectively. You can't save, you can't invest, you can't pay down debt, you can't do anything. And I think that's a really important lesson and a very important conversation to have very, very early on. Then you go on from that and you can then talk about you know compound interest because it introduces the concept of investing. And actually a penny today is not worth a penny tomorrow. It can be worth a lot, lot more. And those would be the two things that I think are really important conversations to have very, very early on. Great point. Sometimes I go speak at uh, local schools and the thing that I tell the students, I say, pull out a piece of paper, write this down. This is very important. And they're like, what, what is it? What you know? They get all excited about it. And I say, write this down. Don't spend more money than you make. Mm -hmm. That's a budget basically. And I think that we don't talk about that enough the marginal propensity to spend, which I'm not trying to be all fancy, Americans spend more money than we make. 
The other thing is talking about the effects of compound interest and not only the positive effects of gaining, you know, 10% interest on whatever type of investment, but also the negative effects of compound interest, paying those high interest rates on credit cards, whether they're department store cards or whether they're, you know, high interest rate home loans, car loans, any loan that has a high interest rate, having to pay that is a negative impact of compound interest. So it can work for you. It can work against you. And I think those are two very important conversations. With that, I want to get into some of the changing the complexion of wealth conversation. What motivates Pete? What inspires you to grow and learn? For me, there's a very, very personal sort of inspiration for me in the fact that I've been homeless twice and you know my family aren't here in the UK, so I never want to go back to that place ever again. But because I was the only one in my family, I've got three brothers, the last born of four to be born here in the UK. I've got a UK passport. I'm a citizen here. I always want to make the best of any opportunity that is afforded me. And I've, I've been afforded a great opportunity to be able to work here in the UK with all of this abundance. And I want to be able to make the most out of that opportunity. And further beyond that, I just want to be able to help people to kind of be a beacon that, you know, people from our background can do well in the professional setting and can achieve things and not just be another part of that stereotype if it were and for me that is a really really big thing i think as a people we also need to understand the whole concept of what financial freedom basically means i mean you go on instagram you'll believe it's going to be you know having a billion dollars or you know having this car and having that and the truth is we all get to decide what financial freedom means to each of us and i think as a conversation and and trying to shift this whole thing around you know the complexion of wealth in itself an understanding of what that financial freedom means to you is vitally important. Great answer to that one. Do you think education plays a big role in wealth building? Absolutely. I'm probably a prime example of this in the fact that, you know, I never got taught about investments or anything like that at home because my parents didn't have any money. You can't teach what you don't know. So I've picked up my knowledge by receiving an education, working on the job in financial services. So, you know, education is, is really important. If you don't educate yourself or you don't know certain things, there's no way that you can be better in that aspect. And finances is no different. If you could give our listeners one last piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Take an interest in what you want for yourself when it comes to your finances, when it comes to money. Education is really important, like we've just said, but self-education is even more important you're going to pick up and retain information on something that you yourself have taken upon yourself to learn about. And particularly talking about financial freedom, what does it actually mean to you? You need to define it. It might be a sum of money. It might be the case that you want to have the ability to live life on your terms. It might look like having enough money to pay your bills with enough money left over so you can go on holidays and spend time with family understand what that basically is for you and educate yourself on the things that you need to do to make that a reality. Absolutely. Pete, that's awesome. And, and you always have great content. Where can our listeners find you at, Pete? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. The account is called Conversation of Money. I also have a website, conversationofmoney.com. But yeah, you can find me there. I post daily, Monday to Friday. It was Monday to Saturday, but I've got to draw back a day. Monday to Friday, I post 60 second videos every single day. I always talk on stories as well. So you can find me on Instagram, Conversation of Money. Awesome. Pete, thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure talking to you all the way from the UK. Yeah, thank you. Another great showdown. 
But it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time.